everyone. I'm far from my husband, and I will read the scripture today. 今天的经文是以弗所书二章一到十一节。所以在基督里，若有什么劝勉，爱心有什么安慰，圣灵有什么交通，心中有什么慈悲怜悯，你们就要意念相同，爱心相同。有一样的心思，有一样的意念，使我的喜乐可以满足。凡事不可结党，不可贪图虚浮的荣耀，只要存心谦卑。个人看别人比自己强，个人不要耽顾自己的事，也要顾别人的事。你们当以基督耶稣的心为心，他本有神的形象，不以自己与神同等为强夺的，反倒虚己。取了奴仆的形象，成为人的样式；既有人的样子，就自己卑微，存心顺服，以至于死，且死在十字架上。所以神将他升为至高，又赐给他那超乎万民之上的名，叫一切在天上的、地上的和地底下的，因耶稣的名，无不屈膝。无不口称耶稣基督为主，使荣耀归于父神。Our scripture reading today is from Philippians chapter two, verses one to eleven. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love. Being one in spirit and of one mind, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God. Something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, and being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. In heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. I'm Mark Stevenson, and welcome to Capital. I'm really glad that you're here. If you don't like what I say today, don't worry. I'm not here very often. We were here for many years in Beijing, and now we are in the Middle East, which is a little bit different. I thought where we live, we have blue skies every day.、Um, a couple months ago, the temperature was 45 or 47, so a little bit warmer than here. But it's dry heat. It's like Southern California. It's actually really, really beautiful. And、um, if you want to hear more about it, you can ask me after、um, after the service. And we've actually had people come and visit us from here, so if you're interested in、uh, exotic adventure, you get to see pyramids and things like that that you've always wanted to see. Let us know; we'd love to have you. Okay, last week 
We talked about Philippians 1. And do you remember what were some of the main points of the sermon last week? Suffering. Suffering well. So let me ask you, this week, did you suffer well? Nobody says yes. <laughs> Everyone kind of smiles. Well, you probably had something to suffer about. It's, it's funny, isn't it, when you think of it that way? And yet life is that way, that we often go through things that are hard and difficult. Today I'm going to talk about Philippians 2. Now, I, I need to acknowledge right away that this chapter is packed with a lot of stuff. And people write books on chapter 2. They write books on just different sections, verses of chapter 2. So obviously I'm not going to cover all of that. But I felt like God led me to point out a couple things. If you have a Bible, if you have it on your phone or something like that, and you can actually look at it without being tempted to look at messages and everything else, then go ahead and do that. Um, I wanted to read the whole thing out, but we simply don't have the time. So there's one verse in chapter 1 that I would like to point out. It's verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 27, 28. And I'll read it. You don't have to look this up, but... Keep the book of Philippians open if you have a chance to do that. Paul says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a, in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come to see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way. Now, the thing that I want to point out there is Paul loved the church in Philippi. It's really obvious from what he says, but it's also very obvious from the context that they were not getting along. Later on in the book, um, I think it's in the last chapter, he says, please help these two ladies who have an argument. Something, we don't know what it is, but they were not getting along. They were not seeing any kind of breakthrough in their relationship. And so because of that, he had asked them, asked the church to help them because they're not getting along. And so unity is a huge overreaching theme in this book. And in this, in this verse, um, well, that's okay. In this verse, he talks about being standing firm in one spirit, not one or two or three spirits, but one spirit. And he says, striving together in the faith. And the Greek in there is the same as you would use for like an athletic team, for a rugby team, for a soccer team. You know, if you're playing those sports, you can't be just concentrating on you shining. You have to work together. And that's what Paul means. Work together to see what God wants to do. So again, the overarching theme is unity. Unity is kind of a, I don't know, it's kind of a strange principle when you think about it. If you want to grow in Christ, read your Bible, right? Okay, yes, I can do that. Okay, pray more. Yes, I can do that. Worship more. Yes, I can do that. Have unity. Oh. Because that depends on other people. That depends on me working with other people. You know, praying by myself, reading the Bible by myself, worshiping by myself. You know, I can do that by myself. But unity requires that we have to work together. And that can be frustrating you know if in your office you don't have unity, in your classroom you don't have unity, with your workmates, with your classmates, with your friends, with your family, with your spouse. 
If you don't have unity, it can be really, really frustrating. But it's really important. And Paul, one of his concerns was people on the outside are going to look at you and when they see Jewish believers alongside Gentile believers, which seems crazy that you would be together worshiping, they will notice. And he's very concerned about how do you look to outsiders? Do you just... Are you, just there, are you just there standing together or do you have real unity? Because unity showcases the glory of God. Unity is kind of like an advertisement. This is what God is like. Okay, unity grandstands the grace of God. Okay, and unity, I need to say this and I'll probably say it several times, is really, really hard. If you're alive today and your heart is beating and you've had about an hour of experience of life, you know that it's not easy to work together with other people. It's not easy to go deep with other people. It's really, really hard. And so when you think about it, you think, okay, well, this is great, but how can we do that? I need to say, too, unity is not an option. You cannot say, well, you know, my church back home, we really got along, or I really got along with this group of people, but now here, I don't know these people really well, and that guy's got bad breath, and he sings really loud, and she's always playing around and complaining, or whatever, whatever, whatever. We have many, many excuses. But unity is something that we have to strive for, we have to work for, we have to go for. You know, when you think about following Jesus... The first step is believing. And then when you, after a while, when you've known God, you realize God is calling you not just to believe, but to actually have an allegiance with him. To actually be loyal to him. To actually get to know him. That's what he's asking you to do. And what God gives you is so wonderful. Knowing Jesus, the intimacy with God is incredible. Nothing else can compare with it. But you begin to realize God asks you to take on his values. That's how you honor God. That's how you honor anybody. By finding out what are their interests. What do they like? What do they think is valuable? And so when we do that with God, then we are saying, we do love you. And we can't do it on our own, but he calls us into it because he empowers us to do it. Okay? Unity is really hard. It's kind of like an exercise program that you need to be intentional about. You need to plan. It doesn't happen naturally. Unity is such a high value to God. As you begin thinking and go through the Bible and you realize, wow, this seems to be really important to God. He brings it up over and over in the scripture. Or this seems to be really important. It's a very, very high value to God. And Jesus in John 17, again, just listen to this. He's praying for us. He's praying for the church. And he tells his father, he says, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you and me are one, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them, which would be us, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them, 
and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Now, the Trinity is a really hard concept for us to understand, but you have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in an intimate community, incredibly wonderful, incredibly perfect. And Jesus says, may they be one as we are one. So it's a very high calling. It's something that God is calling us to. And so when you think about unity, sometimes we can be discouraged and think, oh my, what does that mean? There's a lot of false unity. Sometimes we think unity means we don't fight. We don't say anything. Keep your mouth shut about Donald Trump or about Chinese politics or about anything else that you know, might get people excited or whatever. That's not real unity, though, just because you're being quiet. Um, sometimes churches have what's called Unity Sunday, and everyone stands up and holds hands or something. Hey, that's not bad, but that's not biblical unity. Sometimes you have unity because we're all from Beijing, or we're all from Hunan, or we're all from Arkansas, or we're all from Canada. You know, who's from Canada? Yay! You have unity for about three seconds. Or we belong to this company, or to that compound. That's unity, but it's not biblical unity. What is real unity? What does it look like? How do you live a life of unity? Actually, people want this. People want to be known by others. And they want to know others. But oftentimes, there's a lot of fears. What if people find out what I'm really like? But biblical unity means people do find out what you're really like, and they still love you. They still care. It's, and unity doesn't come instantly. You can make a decision to follow Christ today, instantly. But unity requires little intentional steps. It's slowly, slowly, just like an exercise program. If you want to lose weight, if you want to get strong, it doesn't happen instantly, but you have to be very intentional about it, about doing whatever steps you need to do. Unity is the same way. And according to what the scripture we have here, unity starts with humility. Oftentimes, that's another word that we kind of understand, and we live in a culture that values humility, which is, is, is not a bad thing. In Chinese culture, humility is really valued. And that, that's a good thing. But you need to be a little bit careful that you don't take your cultural definition above the biblical definition. Now, what do I mean by that? Okay, I'm an American, and as Americans, we value freedom. And for most Americans, freedom means I can do whatever I want. Nobody can say no to me. I can do whatever I want. That's freedom for Americans. That's a cultural definition. The biblical definition of freedom it may mean that I have the power to say no to giving in to whatever I want to do. Okay, do you see that? So it's, it's flipped a little bit. And when we find words that we think we know because we understand it from a cultural definition, we have to compare that, what does the Bible say? So Paul says you need to be humble. Okay, unity starts with um, humility, but actually if you go to the next slide... 
Unity doesn't just start with humility, it lives with humility and it ends with humility. Humility is not just to start, today I'll be humble, tomorrow I can be myself. Humility is a lifestyle, it's a thought process. And Paul says, here, I'll give you an example. He talks about Jesus, we heard that this morning. And Paul says in, in verse 5, he says, in your relationships with one another, not just with God, but he says, with one another, have the same mindset of Christ. And then he goes through this progression. And in the progression, he says, Jesus gave up that status, that wager, that role of being one with God. And he emptied himself. And, and you think, okay, what does that really mean? It means when you empty yourself, you're not known for who you really are. Think about it. Jesus was misunderstood. People didn't really get it. Some people didn't believe him. Some people mocked him. Some people even killed him. And it says that Jesus, he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. This is the creator of the universe, taking on the form of a servant, coming to earth. We really can't even comprehend that. It might mean like you tonight spending the night in the garbage bin by your house where all the trash goes in. What would it be like for you to climb into the trash and spend the night there? But even that does not compare to God coming to earth in the form of a little baby. How vulnerable is that? Think about that. Mary, Joseph, somebody else could have dropped Jesus, could have banged his head. He could have gotten sick. What vulnerability, what does that say about our Father and his willingness to do that? So Jesus, he empties himself, he becomes a servant, takes on human flesh, even dies. And not just dies, not just gets killed, he dies on a cross, one of the most humiliating at that time, one of the most humiliating ways to die. If you knew someone who died on a cross, that meant they were really, really bad. They didn't just die. They didn't die from cancer. They didn't die because of an accident. They died on a cross. Whoa, you can't get worse than that. So Paul says, here's our example. Well, that's, that's quite a high bar. How do you even get close to that? A lot of times when we think of humility, we think of it being nice, being courteous to other people. But emptying ourselves, and Paul says, in humility, in verse 7, or verse 3, he says, value others better than yourselves. And there's some other, other translations that say, consider others better than you. Now, if that's somebody who I really respect, like Rick Lehman, that's very easy to do, to consider him better than me. But what about your eye? What about your driver? What about the Baan? What about people who irritate you, people who bother you? How do you consider them better than yourselves? That is really hard. And I want to say this, we can't do this on our own. Okay, you maybe can for a couple weeks, but then you'll forget about it. But with the help of the Holy Spirit that lives inside, you will be surprised. As you come to Jesus and you say, I want to do this, but I can't. But I know through you, I can. And you will begin seeing a change in your heart. You will begin seeing yourself 
thinking and doing things that maybe you never did before. In Romans 12, verses 9 to 10, Jesus, or Paul says, Love may be, must be sincere. Hate what is evil, hold on to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Okay, he says, love may be sincere. Again, it's easy to honor people who you think you can get something from. You know, I know if I say something, maybe I can get a raise. I know if I do this, maybe I can get a break. I know if I'm good to this man, maybe they'll sign whatever document I need. But that's not what he's saying here. He said, let your love be sincere. And when you go through this, you come to the conclusion, who can do this? And nobody can, and yet we can, not because of ourselves, but because of the Holy Spirit living inside of us. It's an incredible, incredible advantage. Humility sometimes might mean being misunderstood. Let me tell you a story. Um, I've worked for a company. It's an international company for many, many years. We do cross-cultural um, different things. And 30 years ago, I helped start the company with our founder. The founder, this is a really, really good guy. I'll call him John. That's not his name. John was a really good guy. He still is a good guy. And John and I worked together for a number of years, and then John stepped down. He turned it over to me and some other people. The only problem is when John stepped down, he didn't really step down. <laughs> and he kept criticizing every decision we made after he left. And it soon created a lot of tension. It soon made it really difficult even to move ahead. So what we had to do was stop any of John's influence on our, our company. And that was really hard. It was really hurtful for him. In the ensuing years, I tried many times to reach out to John. And he wouldn't have it. Wouldn't have it. Fifteen years. We had a broken relationship. Finally, a couple years ago was our 30th anniversary of our company. And every year we have like an annual retreat. And at this retreat, we invited John and his wife to come. Now, the wife, we'd been able to bring things back together. But John was still unhappy about this and this and this and this. And so John and I, with the help of some other people, we were able to get into a room and we were able to work things out and it was wonderful. It was really, really good. And it was interesting though because before the retreat began, I was thinking, well, this is not going to be difficult. I don't have anything against John. I, I forgave him a long time ago. And I thought, it's all John's fault. You know, everything was his fault. Everything he did was wrong and wrong. The night before we had this get-together, this meeting, John and I, with some help of some other people, somebody asked me, they said, so what part do you need to ask forgiveness for? And I thought, nothing. And the, this guy said to me, he said, go back and pray again. In our company, we have, we have a, a number of, like, not a rule, but a, a what would I say, a principle. It's called the 5% principle. That means if you have conflict with somebody, even if they are 95% wrong and you are 5% wrong, admit the 5%. Whatever part of it is your fault, admit that because that usually breaks open things. And so I thought, I didn't do anything wrong. And then as I prayed the night before, I realized, no, there were a couple things I did wrong. And so the next day when we came together, I said, hey, I need to ask your forgiveness for this. 
And that opened him up. In the beginning, he said, I don't think I did anything wrong. Three hours later, he hugged me and cried and said, I miss your friendship. That's what I miss most. Can you forgive me for all I did? Now, this particular retreat where we bring all the employees together, it was supposed to be a 30th anniversary celebration. But what it actually ended up being was a focus on this founder because there had been some reconciliation, which was really good. But before I went on this retreat, I felt like God said something to me. I felt like he said, for the sake of unity, are you willing to be misunderstood? And I felt like he was giving me an option. I could say yes or no. So I said, I thought about it and I thought, okay. And I felt like he said, get ready. You will be misunderstood. So at this weekend retreat, the focus was on John. Very little was said about me. And I knew God had spoken to me. The problem was I shared that with my wife. I didn't share that with our daughter. Some of you know Esther. And throughout the weekend retreat, at one point, she came up to me crying. And she said, it's not fair. And I said, why? And she said, they're honoring this guy, and they're saying nothing about you. Nobody even mentions you. This, she said, this isn't fair. This isn't right. And I looked at her, and I said, I'm sorry I didn't tell you earlier, but I felt like God said, are you willing to be misunderstood? And I said, this is at this stage, at this time, for this retreat, this is what God has called me to. And I said, for the sake of unity, it's okay. And it was a very one-sided retreat, and people even came up to me, because I, I led this company for 10 years, and people came up to me and shook my hand and said, hi, are you new here? <laughs> what do you do with that? <laughs> you know, do you know who I am? You don't know who I am. And instead, God was saying, lay it down. Go back to Jesus. Think about all the times he's misunderstood. Think about all the times he's tested. Think about all the times people are just attempting to. Most of us will never, ever face that kind of scrutiny, that kind of judgment, that kind of thing where people are following us. And yet, he's our example. Now, this, we can go on to the next one. This is all kind of nice and good in your head, but we need to make it real, okay? It needs to be, it needs to touch your real life. It needs to touch your reality. Otherwise, it's just some nice scriptures and it doesn't really make any difference. What does that mean? Okay, in the next, in, uh, where is that? In verse 12, Paul says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but how much more in my absence. He says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Now, that scripture says, continue to work out your salvation. It doesn't say work for your salvation. You are saved. But work out your salvation is the same way as working it out. Don't just have it here. Work it out into your real life. The same thing if you look at a YouTube video or, yeah, and, and on exercises and you say, man, that would be good to do, but you never do, you're not going to lose weight, you're not going to get strong, whatever, you have to work out. And working it out takes patience, it takes endurance, it takes time, it takes God's leading, God's 
Holy Spirit working in you. And what is the fear and trembling then? Be afraid of disunity. Be afraid of not being able to work out relational conflicts. Be afraid of missing the glory of God. Those are the kinds of things that we really need to hold and say, God, help, help. Almost all of us, if we went around and asked, we probably have one or two people that are, still haven't worked things out with. One or two people in our workplace that we wish that they would be transferred and maybe get a new job, go somewhere else. And yet those people are the ones that are making us go to God, depending on him, saying, I can't do this. This person irritates me. Help me, God. Help me, help me, help me, God. Okay, Paul goes on in verse 14. He says, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure. Children of God without fault, living in a crooked generation. Shine like stars so that other people can see how you respond. If you say a lot of things, do you do what you say? Do your words and your actions match? And you don't know if you love someone unconditionally until they give you a condition not to love them. Rick told me that many years ago, and I have seen that played out over and over again. God puts us in those situations that we'd rather not be in because he wants to work in us and show us, I can work love in you. I can work patience in you. And he is certainly able to. God seldom puts us in a perfect fit. Very, very seldom. Doug McGee and I and another guy, when we lived here in Beijing, the three of us would meet every week for accountability, just to encourage and help each other. That was probably the best time of accountability, of brotherly relational time that I have had. But that was 10 years ago. That was the benchmark. Now, what I can do is I can say, that was so good before, and I'll never find that again. That doesn't help anybody. It doesn't help me. It doesn't help anybody. And so instead, while I can say, God, thank you for that. Thank you for giving me that time. Then I can hope and work towards having the same thing in whoever God gives me at whatever season. Do everything without grumbling. Let me ask you, recently we had some really heavy rains, right? How many of you had flooding in your home? Okay, that was, that was wonderful, wasn't it? You get to go swimming, take a bath, whatever you want to do. We, my wife Boki and I, we are staying with James and Joanne Shen. And if you ever have the chance to do it, you should. It's, they have spoiled us rotten. We, we have gained weight because the food is incredible. They're wonderful hosts. They're dear, dear family to us. And not just because they're good to us. They're wonderful people. Joanne, she's not here right now because she's back in their place because the pump downstairs is not working. And we found out just how much it wasn't working the other day when it rained. Now, Joanne, you have to know, is an artist. So if you go to their home, it's a little bit like going into an art museum because everywhere you walk, there's sculpture, there's painting, there's different things. So you don't just walk in and go, oh, that's nice. You walk in and you find yourself looking at this, looking at that. Who made this? Is this yours? 
She's an artist, and the house is filled with her art. So we're in one of the rooms down in the basement. On the other side of the basement is her studio, where she has artwork, she has pens, pencils. She has everything she needs to do her art. So the other day, when it rained really hard, we went, um, we went into that room, and we looked, and there was about an inch of water on the floor. Now think about this. This is the place where you do some of your most heartfelt work. This is the place where pieces of your soul, your mind, your heart are scattered throughout that room. And honestly, okay, I'll be really honest with you. I asked Joanne if I could share this, and she said yes. Boki and I both thought she would come down the stairs and go, ah, scream or something like that. Not because Joanne does that, but that's what I would have done. This is my room. This is my work. One of the most precious places in their whole house. I would have come down and, ah, you know, move everything really fast. Come on. And she came down and she said, oh, there's water here. And I thought, yes. And we were waiting for the blow up and explosion and it never came. And she said, okay, well, why don't we move things around? And then the eye came to and started sweeping. And okay, this isn't working. Push some buttons. And oh, I guess the well's not working. And I thought, does she see what we see? Or what? You know, I thought, no, there is water there. She never blew up. So after we had cleaned up, we, Boki and I both asked her, what, how come you didn't get mad? How come you didn't explode? And she said, years ago, I learned to let go. Years ago, because I would get nervous, oh, don't touch my sculpture, oh, don't do this, don't do that, and she realized she was a slave to that. And she wasn't sharing, she wasn't, so she, she let go. And I thought, you know, she, didn't, she wasn't upstairs in her room going, okay, I know there's water downstairs, okay, God, give me the grace to be patient, to be whatever. We told her, hey, there's water downstairs, and she went down and saw the water. And so whatever condition her heart was in was ready for that. And we were really impressed. I thought, wow, God, you have done something in her. Where she, it wasn't just a piece of furniture that she had bought in the store. This was her work. And yet God had told her, let go. Give up. And she did. And I thought, that's a living example of do everything without grumbling or arguing. Okay? Now... Maybe she has other moments or whatever. But at that moment, when we saw her without being planned or anything like that, I really saw God can work in people. And it gave me hope that God can work in me and God can work in us. At the very end of the chapter, Paul says, here are some examples of what this looks like. He talks about Timothy. And he says something about Timothy in verse 20. And Paul's giving some instructions. We're going to do this, and I want to send this person, that person. Paul's in prison, I think we know, at, at this point. At, when he's writing this letter, he does not yet know what kind of sentence he will receive. Although he does say, I believe that I will see you one day. So he doesn't think he'll be killed. But he doesn't know what kind of sentence he'll receive. So he's in prison. Timothy is somebody who he deeply loves. He's worked with somebody, a really good brother. And he says in verse, uh, where is it? In verse 20, he says, I have no one else like him. I have no one else like Timothy who cares about the church in Philippi. So he says, I'm going to send him to you. Okay, let's, let's stop for a minute. 
Paul's in prison. He's not at the beach house and saying, hey, you know, I think we're going to send Timothy to you. He's in prison. One of his greatest comforts, one of his greatest relational comforts is Timothy. And Paul's in prison awaiting sentencing, and he says, I'm going to send Timothy to you. Do you understand what I'm getting at? That is what it means to consider other interests more than your own. If I was in prison, I wouldn't want anybody to leave. Probably Timothy came and visited him every day. And instead he's saying, I want to give that up for your sake because I'm concerned about you. Putting others' interests above yourself. Okay, I'll finish with this. How does it work here in this church, in Capital Community Church? What does it look like? We can go on to the next slide. And I think there are several different metaphors that you can have because look around you. There's some faces that you recognize. There's some people that you know, but there's other people that you don't know. And there's probably people that you have seen for several years and you know their name or you know their face, but you've never really talked to. What does unity mean for us? Okay, there's several different routes we can go as a church. The first one that I want to point out is we can be like a bus stop. You know, when you think about a bus stop, you're there for a short time, and, you know, you're, you're geographically, you're next to people. And you even, what kinds of questions do you ask at a bus stop? Do you know what time it is? Do you know what bus is coming? Do you know, does the 606 go this way or that way? But you don't have deep conversations. You might feel very strange if you were standing next to someone and they said, my wife wants to leave me. You mean, what? You mean on the bus? What would you do? So a lot of international churches or whatever can have what I would call a bus stop unity. It's very shallow, kind of say hi to each other, and then that's it. If you want to go deeper than that, then you can go to what I call bleachers unity. Now, this was at an NBA game that we went to in January with my younger brother and my nephew. And I remember when we were at the game, the guy sitting next to me that you don't see in there, he was, we started talking a little bit, you know, he was like, how much did you pay for this? And I said, my sister paid, she's got lots of money, so don't, I didn't know how much we paid. But then we talked a little bit about the team and what do you think about this player, that player, and this trade, and yeah, and it was all kind of, you know, light talk. And then, you can't see here, but my younger brother on his left was a guy from China. So we talked with him a little bit, a little bit deeper than the bus stop, but not much. The next one you can go to is what I call a barbershop unity. And this would be a barbershop where you have known each other. You go into the barbershop for something. And maybe you've come to church for something. I've come here, I want to get something. When you go to a barbershop, most of the time you don't go there if you don't want your hair cut. Unless it's a barbershop that's been around for a long time in your neighborhood and the people know each other. Have you ever been to one of those barbershops? Well, you really feel like an outsider when you go in because everybody knows each other. And they come in with cups of coffee or whatever, these old timers, and they're telling stories and talking to each other. They go there because they, they like the fellowship. They want to be with each other. That's more than a bus stop and that's more than the bleachers. But that's still not biblical unity. If you want to go even more, and thanks to Laura Martin for this example, 
a band, people who know we have a purpose. In a band like this, nobody is left out. Even someone that goes ding, 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 they all have a purpose. And they know and understand each other because they know how to work together. They know how to work together. They know they have to work out differences, not just in performance, but in other things. And maybe you say, well, you know, I've been in a band, I've been in a whatever, whatever. Metaphors always fall apart. But the idea that each person has a role to play, nobody is greater or less than others, and you have to listen to other people in order to make it work. Which do you want to be? It's up to you, not the person next to you, not the pastor, not whatever. It's up to you. What do you want? Not too long ago, a friend of mine, he said, you know, at my church, I don't really attract people. No one comes up to me and says, hey, how are you doing? How was your week or what's going on or anything like that? And he said, I was getting to be a little bit lonely and frustrated. And I thought, you know what, skip it. I'm going to start going after people. He said, I'm going to go just be aggressive about it and talking to people. Now, not aggressive like grabbing people, but aggressive in that he didn't wait for other people to come to him. He didn't stand there waiting. Instead, he went to other people. And I have some other friends that have said, whenever I go to church, before I go, I pray and say, God, who do you want me to talk to? Who do you want me to spend time I know a lot of times on Sunday morning we come here to be filled. That's wonderful. But begin asking God, what else do you have for me to do? God won't say, oh, today I want the whole church to come over to your house for lunch. All right? But like an exercise program, he will probably give you little steps to do, little steps, until it becomes a habit. And then people open up. They become more open. Probably all of us here wish we had people to listen to us. We wish that people. Have you ever met people, when you meet them, they immediately tell you everything about themselves, how their kids are doing, the accomplishments, the new car, the whatever, 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 whatever. And when you leave, you realize you've said about that much and they've said this much. Because people are lonely. People are hungry for attention. People are hungry for someone to listen. Asking questions shows that you care. Asking questions shows I'm interested. I'm placing your interests. So don't leave church go, nobody ever talked to me. Nobody cares about me. Leave church thinking, who did I talk to? Who did I reach out to? You, if you do this, you will begin to see God doing marvelous and wonderful things. And he will bring unity. But it takes your effort and my effort for him to do that. Again, we cannot do it on our own, but with God's help, we can. I've been parts of fellowships that had wonderful unity, and I've been parts of fellowship that didn't. <laughs> and it, when it works well, it's amazing. When it works well, you really see something of God that you didn't see before. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you invite us into that unity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I, we have no idea what that's like, but we know that it's wonderful. We know that it's complete. We know that it's perfect. And Father, we know for you, reconciliation, unity is a really, 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 really high value. It's not an option. 
It's not something that you hope might get there. You tell us, love one another, honor one another above ourselves. And so, Father, we come to you and we say, God, we give ourselves to you, perhaps a little bit afraid to do this, but we give ourselves to you and we ask, Jesus, that you would use us, that you would begin working on us. Show us what are the small steps that we can begin to do. How can we be interested in other people when usually we're only interested in ourselves? How can we listen and ask questions rather than simply tell people what's going on with us? Jesus, help us in this. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your love. And we thank you that without you, we can do nothing. But with you, this is actually really, truly possible in the reality of our situations in our daily life and in our church. We thank you, God, and we ask this in your name. Amen.